0: Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. When you hear the word cult, you imagine a large group of people under the influence of a single influential leader committing the most atrocious acts of inhumanity. But what if I told you that a cult could have only three members and be deadly enough? with a dangerous leader at the helm in 2008 two innocent lives were lost in a sequence of events almost too bizarre to believe if you've heard of the Kruger's Dorp cult killers or even watched devil'sdorp then you may just be prepared for the story that I'm about to tell you if you're not familiar with what I've just mentioned then I urge you to brace yourself because this tale is is stranger than fiction. Much of the information I have used within this episode came from a book that was written by the lawyer who was representing the Lota siblings at the beginning of their trial, Donnie Hronung. Due to much legislature and politics, he ended up not being able to continue representing the siblings, although he still wanted to help. The accounts mentioned, therefore, are basically first-person narrative given to Donnie by the individuals themselves. At points, the story may seem incredibly unreal, but I assure you that everything I'm about to tell you is 100% true. To our knowledge, of course. Due to the very different nature of this episode, I'm going to be telling it in a very different way. In order to understand what happened, and more importantly, why and how it happened, there are some key concepts that you need to be aware of. But before we delve into the why, let's explore the who, and the moments that led up to the crimes that made headlines. To start off, let's meet the Lata family and learn more about who they are. The Lotse family can be traced back to the Boer Folk, who played major roles in the Boer War with the British imperialists. But that's a story for another day or a history lesson. So we're just going to start with Marie. Marie Boki Cornelius, nicknamed as such because when she was excited, she would jump up and down like a Boki, which is a gazelle that is native to South Africa. She ended up marrying a man named Pete van der Merwe, and they went on to have four children, her only daughter named Maria Magdalena Hendriana Fundava. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. Much later on in her life, Boki would go on to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. This seemingly unrelated fact is important for much later. Maria, her daughter, who was nicknamed and known to many as Ricky, would go on to study at university and become an Afrikaans school teacher. She went on to marry Johannes Petras Charhadas Lotta. The couple had met as they were both studying at the same university and shortly after they married, they went on to have their first child. The baby girl was christened Nicolette Lauter and was born on April 15th 1982. However, in her early life, her parents were relatively absent as they were both juggling studying as well as working and so from the age of around nine months, she spent most of her time in creche during the day. When they did have the time though, the family would get together, they would have fun and they would play music. This is also where her love and passion for music would begin. the family then moved to the Transcai after Johannes graduated with a diploma in Accounts Management. And it was here in 1986 that Kristal was born, and in 1988, Hardis, their last child, was born. Soon after his birth, the family moved to Westphal in Durban, after Johannes was recruited by a big company. The family, who up until this point had just lived in landlocked farms, welcomed the idea of being near the beautiful Indian Ocean. And it was here in Westville that they would raise their three children. And it was also here that they would meet their demise. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The family was deeply religious, with one of Maria's and one of Johannes' brothers each becoming a pastor and a preacher. Weekly meetings, Bible study, Sunday school, church choir and home prayer groups surrounded the of children as they grew up. And as a young girl Nicolette would often spend time with her grandmother Borki. remember her, whilst on holiday. It is here that she would learn about all the African spirits, the tokoloshi being the centre of the narrative. And this was all before she was even 8 years old. Nicolette grew up with an avid, fantasy-filled mind. Although she didn't receive much attention from her mother in her early years, her siblings, Crystal and Hardis, benefited from more attention from Ricky as she had later on quit her job in order to raise her children. Nicolette, or Nikki, as she was affectionately known and how I will refer to her in the remainder of this narrative, didn't really mind that much and she ended up growing quite close to her father. She would often accompany him on his fishing trips, which he loved doing, and it was there that she learned the tricks of the trade. Around the age of 13, though, she decided in typical teen fashion that it was time to not spend her weekends on fishing trips, but instead she wanted to meet boys and hang out with her friends. Although sad, her father realised that his little girl was growing up and he allowed her the space to do so. So I think it's also pertinent to mention here that the Lotta family held many norms or ways of life that are typical of a conservative nuclear Afrikaans family. This included the patriarchal rules of the family, as well as the intense privacy that surrounded each member of the family, to the extent that the children were raised with the allowance of keeping their doors closed or even locked. Other family members would have to knock and wait before entering. This small detail may not seem relevant at all now, but it has a major role to play later on in this narrative. So, Nikki is growing up, experimenting with boys and just after her teens, she has her first sexual encounter. So, there are obviously a lot of changes going on and Nikki discovers a lipstick-smudged cigarette as well as a Spider-Man figurine in her father's car and it's later discovered that these belong to his secretary. One thing leads to another and after telling her mother, Ricky then confronts her husband in front of her children. Nikki is 15 years old at the time, Hardis is 10 years old and Christelle is 13. All of the children would later note that this was a pivotal changing moment in their lives, a moment in which they saw the strong father figure that they had come to know and love crumble and beg for forgiveness from his wife. From this point on, things are just never really the same again for anyone in the family. Nikki, now as a young woman, is searching, like many others her age, for meaning in her life, and in particular, a deep religious experience that'll give her the approval that she feels is lacking from her parents. She also happens to be the most religious and the most superstitious one in the family, and I don't doubt that her grandmother, Boki, had a role to play in this. She believed fully in the stories she was told about the evil spirits, the Tokoloshi and the role of the Inyangas and Sangomas, African traditional healers. For a quick catch up or 101 for my non-South Africans, the Tokoloshi is an evil imp-like spirit that terrorizes the lives of families, particularly in rural African villages and locations. I actually cover the full history of the Tokoloshi myth and legend in this video if you're interested in learning more. As the children enter their teen and adult years, Hardis grows into a quiet but diligent young man, spending more time with his computer and his gadgets than anything else. As opposed to his more social sister Nikki, he does not have a big friend group and he's never had a girlfriend. But what the two do have in common is that they are both deeply religious and they both suffer from quite a low self-image and self-esteem. From this point on, I'm not really going to speak about Christelle as she doesn't really have any place or role in this narrative. She left the latter home after finishing school and she went on to study at Stellenbosch University. Although she encountered her own spiritual battles along the way, particularly with navigating life as part of the shofar movement she joined, it does not impact the story that is to be told. So whilst in her teenage years, Nikki is diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, the eating disorder, one that is then fueled by her religious fasting habits as well as her innate need for control. Along with this diagnosis, Nikki also suffers from an extremely low self-image and self-esteem, both of which are just exacerbated by the physical interactions she has with boys during this time. She seemed to just be attracting and engaging with boys that would just use her for a good time and then dispose of her. This also created a very warped view in her mind of what love means. She later, at only 15 years old, ends up getting unknowingly involved with a friend of hers in an unsolicited adult photo shoot amongst other things, and this experience would ultimately go on to haunt her for years to come. With mental distress forming a major part of her life, Nikki is not in a good frame of mind. However, she does have her music, and that is something she excels at, and truly loves, a passion that she developed as a child. She goes on to study a music and jazz course at the Durban Institute of Technology, and it is here that she meets a whole new group of friends. She decides to give her life back to God and she becomes a born-again Christian, far more religious than she has ever been before. But this transition, really giving up parties, boys, drinking and more, is not an easy one. And to add insult to injury, the nursemaid who has looked after her since childhood, Amma, passes away from old age. Nikki is now 21 years old. And her fixation with religion, as well as battling her own demons, is at its peak. And in 2001, a woman named Clementia Intomi fills the job that Amma left behind, and this is where the trouble begins. So I'm now going to take a break from the Lauder family, and I'm going to introduce you to the Naidu family. Well. At least to Matthew, that is. Matthew Naidu was born in 1986 in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal, and grew up as an only child. His father left the family when he was only two years old. Growing up, he didn't excel in school, and very early on, he was diagnosed as being dyslexic. Teachers soon remarked, however, that he was also incredibly lazy, And this was a trait that would only increase in the years to come. Soon after finishing school and with not many options, he began to work in his uncle's factory shop, packing boxes for about 290 Rand a week. At this point he had grown into a very tall fleshy man of over 100 kgs, who was quite strong. He was unfortunately also quite spoiled, Even with his mom's meagre earnings as a seamstress, he managed to always get his way and control everyone around him. His mother, who was later questioned about his pathological lies, would go on to say, A lot of children tell lies. Maybe he thought he was protecting me. He deserves another chance. Honestly, I'm sure he considered this his special gift his ability to get people to do whatever he wanted. Ironically, throughout all this time whilst he was working, he would seek advice on how to be a man of God, from his friend and next-door neighbour, Reverend Pele. Reverend Pele was pretty much double Matthew's age, but he was the father figure that Matthew needed. Reverend Pele also happened to be the husband of Venla, who will enter this narrative very shortly. And so, in 2007, Matthew was 20 years old and he was living in Phoenix with his family. Right, so we are back to the Lotta family and if you will remember, I had mentioned that Clementia had just started working for the family. It also just so happened that her son was a Sangoma. From the moment she arrived, Nikki and her did not get along, and very soon Nikki was convinced that she had cursed the family. And so Nikki began to accuse her of witchcraft, and as you can imagine, the situation escalated quite quickly. Obviously, Clementia was not impressed with these accusations, and so began a cat-mouse game of torment. Clementia soon realised that Nikki was quite superstitious and so she would place dead frogs or anything she could find under Nikki's windowsill or in places that she knew Nikki would find them. Nikki in turn changed her habits and her routines, washing all of her laundry in her own private bathroom, and not eating any meals that Clementia had a hand in making. Her complaints to her parents, however, fell upon deaf ears. So at this stage, Kristal, her sister, was studying in Stellenbosch, and Hardest was just not the kind of person for confrontation. Nikki's delusions became so bad that one day she doused the walls in motor oil, after mistakenly reading Castrol Multigrade, as Muti grade. Muti means medicine, particularly to protect, prevent and treat ailments, and is deeply related to the realm of witchcraft and traditional healing. She was also fasting often and not eating any food that was prepared at home, and so as a result she was losing hair, which is to be expected and quite normal given the circumstances. However, instead of attributing that to her current lifestyle, she blamed it on black magic. And of course, Clementia. She then started to claim that at night she was being plagued by evil spirits and she was being raped by the Tokoloshi. I mention this because it was this turmoil that led her to seek help. And it was through the help that she sought that she met the individual who changed her entire life trajectory. So Nikki began to go from church to church, seeking help or an exorcism to rid her of these evil spirits. No one was able to, or rather wanted to, get involved. Until when at a service of the umpteenth church, the Pentecostal Church in Phoenix, she is approached by a woman who has heard her dilemma and knows someone who can help. And so it is here on the 11th of February 2007 that Nikki visits Venla and her daughter Claudette, the exorcists of Phoenix, or at least two of them. This duo would give Nikki the thing she has been longing for the most, validation. Unfortunately, they see her vulnerable state of mind and they take full advantage of it. Now, I'm not speaking against the belief that dark spirits may very well exist, but in this case, Mama Wendler and Claudette shamelessly exploited the rich white girl from Westville. Before any exorcism can take place, Nikki is told that she needs to purchase certain food items in order to placate the evil spirits. And it is required that she drives the duo to the shops and pays for their groceries, I mean, essential exorcism items. And with that purchase all done, the exorcism begins. Venla begins to wave her arms in the air, cleansing Nikki's aura, whilst Claudette sits on the corner of the bed smoking a cigarette. She soon, however, puts out her cigarette and not but a moment later begins convulsing and growling and thrashing about. Nikki is shocked, but Venla convinces her that this is just how the dark spirits show themselves, and not to worry because Claudette is protected by her. To ward off these evil spirits, Venla then shakes a charm bracelet at Claudette. And all of a sudden, she is back, looking around, confused, asking her mother what has happened. I mean, surely if this is a regular occurrence, she would realize by now what is going on? Nikki, however, is impressed by the power that Wendla has to control the dark spirits and probably as a result of psychosomatic suggestion, she is sold. Wendla, obviously milking the situation, says yes, she will be able to cleanse Nikki's life and home but the process itself will be a very long and expensive one. Nikki, exuberant that someone is actually willing to help her, agrees. She will rid herself and her family of the black magic and evil spirits, no matter what the cost. The following week, Venla visits Nikki's home on the Wednesday, and that Saturday evening, Nikki spends the night at Venla in Phoenix. And it is here that she meets Matthew Naidoo. So you know how some couples meet on Tinder or in a club, well, Matthew had heard about Nikki, the white, blonde girl from Westville with an evil spirits problem, from his friend and father figure, Reverend Play. And let's just say I'm sure the ensuing conversations about Nikki were less than savoury. And so that Saturday night, he uninvitedly showed up with a bouquet of dusty plastic flowers, Walked straight into the house, into the room where Nikki was sitting on the couch, got down on his knees and said to her, You are beautiful. I love you. Please will you marry me? Excuse me? Rando, say what? Yeah, so that doesn't really go as planned as Nikki swats the flowers away and objects to this person that she has never ever seen or met before. Her first thoughts about him, as later revealed in court, was that he was loud, irritating and attention-seeking. Matthew, having set his eyes on a new target, refuses to be discouraged, and throughout the night he continues to attempt to engage her in conversation, make her laugh and impress her with his biblical knowledge. And you know what? His persistence proved successful as she goes to sleep that night thinking about this brazen, brash man who approached her in a way that no man has ever approached her before. At this point too, she has not been with another man in years as she had chosen to remain celibate to show her dedication to God. The next day, as she arrives home, she receives a text message from an unknown number. You guessed it, it's Matthew. The message reads, Hi Nikki, it's Matthew. I hope you made it home safe. I was worried for you. I miss you. Please come back soon. Right, so immediately there should be red flags because, I mean, this guy just met you and he already misses you. Not to mention the way that he met you to begin with. But anyway, Nikki overlooks all of this because she's just honestly happy that someone cares. And after speaking back and forth in text messages the entire week, she is back in Phoenix that weekend and they meet once again face to face in Wimpy. Matthew then proceeds to tell Nikki that not only is he a man of God, but that he wishes to become a messianic prophet and a healer of the afflicted. Nikki is over the moon and it is here that the love bombing truly begins. And it is also here that I'm going to start explaining this narrative in a different way. In a way that will make the events that occurred make a lot more sense. So love bombing is characterized by excessive attention, admiration and affection, with the ultimate goal to make the recipient feel special, needed and loved. It is also a vital component in the transition into a cult. Now. Before we go any further, I'm pretty sure that you've heard of cults before. But did you know that not every single cult is bad? A cult is defined as any system of devotion to a person or an idea and can take the form of a church or a sect. I mean, in this respect, a cult could even be a group of people who religiously follow Chloe Ting workouts and swear that she is the best fitness guru out there. A cult, regardless of their goals or missions, often have several dimensions in common though. The first is a charismatic leader. In the case of cults that are not the greatest, this leader would also tend to be a master manipulator. This would be Matthew, the persistent man whom Nikki has just met. Leaders are able to read people and find things in common, in order to draw them in. In this case, Matthew has found common ground, religion, and now all he has to do is focus his attention on building that connection. And it is often those with lower self-esteem or those who are searching for something more that tend to be an easy target for a cult leader. Nikki is one such individual. She is going through emotional turmoil, and all she is seeking is someone to validate her experience. Love bombing is therefore used here to create the perception that further interactions with this individual, Matthew, will give Nikki everything that she so badly desires. Chemically, the recipient gets a boost of dopamine and endorphins, and so this creates a positive reinforcement model, where receiving this love becomes a necessity. The two of them have only just met, but the connection has already begun. Unfortunately, for Matthew, Mr. and Mrs. Lotta are part of a generation or era that is not entirely open or rather exuberant about racial mixing, especially at least when it comes to their children's partners. After an argument between mother and daughter one night about the state of her room or something along those lines, Nikki mentions that, fine, I'll go stay with my boyfriend. Immediately after hearing more about him as well as where he lives, Nikki's parents call out Matthew as a a very racist term for an Indian person. And honestly, they were initially horrified that their precious daughter was fraternising with an Indian man. Matthew, however, then spoke to Mrs. Lotta over the phone and he calmed her down much to Nikki's surprise. So although initially she had rejected his physical advances, after he comes to her rescue, they sleep together in the back of her car. He convinces her that God is with them and has blessed the union. It's also Matthew's first time, and for him, this is a victory in more than one way. They then enter the next phase of what will be a disastrous connection. After this initial physical connection, Matthew declares that Nikki is his soulmate and proposes marriage yet again. But this time, Nikki accepts. Yeah, this is only after probably less than a month of knowing him. Matthew's love bombing is clearly working. So, this prospective husband has yet to meet Nikki's family. In person though. And so the day eventually comes, Hardis's 19th birthday. Hardis ends up getting along great with Matthew, connecting over their shared interest of Samurai Jack and WrestleMania. But unfortunately, the Lotta parents are less than impressed with Matthew. Although they feign politeness, their real feelings about the situation are more than obvious, especially to Matthew. And that spells trouble. The following Monday morning, Mrs. Lotta approaches her daughter and suggests that perhaps she needs to see a psychiatrist. Why, you may ask? Well, the Lotta parents were worried that Nikki may be schizophrenic, much like Boki, her grandmother. Schizophrenia does have a big genetic component and multiple studies have discovered that there is a significant heritability factor. It is interesting to note that all the bizarre behaviour that Nikki displayed in the previous month did not warrant concern, however it was the addition of this Indian boyfriend that finally persuaded her parents to question her sanity. So now that Matthew has a hold on Nikki that is ever-growing, he announces to her that he is a prophet, healer, and God's messenger. In many cases, religion is the main factor that leads many to a cult, as the leader will often claim that they are sent by God. Or in Matthew's case, he would later announce himself as the son of God. This is done in order to legitimise what the individual is saying and make the narrative all that more convincing. Matthew then goes on to say that all of the trauma of his father leaving at the age of two years old caused him to develop multiple personalities, which was confirmed at that stage by a psychiatrist. I mean, at two years old. So he was actually Matthew, the human him, Matthias, the wise old man part of him, and Methane, the naughty, rebellious side of him. And you know what? This lie was just the tip of a very big, titanic-sized iceberg. As the relationship progresses, Matthew also has moments where he speaks in the different voices of the individuals he channels. Now, if you remember the Krugersdorp cult killer case, which I will link up above in case you want to check it out, this was also something that Cecilia Stain did. Matthew was a formidable cult leader in training, possessing many traits of narcissism, and later in court, he was outright called a pathological liar. He would, however, continue to speak this brainwashing narrative to Nikki and later Hardis, convincing the siblings that his version of events was reality. On Mrs. Lotter's 50th birthday, she decides to give Matthew another chance, seeing as Nikki appears to be doing so much better after she met him. And so he is invited and attends her birthday bash. And then after the party, Nikki proceeds to sneak Matthew into her room to spend the night but Kristel, who is visiting from Stellenbosch, spots the duo and tells Mrs Lotter, who is less than impressed. Matthew, when confronted, of course has a story, And he proceeds to tell Mrs. Lotta how he was raped the previous year when he was studying at UNISA. He uses this fake narrative to back up his new story on how he's not into anything that's sexual, which is the furthest thing from the truth, and also how he is so drawn to Nikki because she is such an amazing woman of God. And like so many before her, Mrs. Lotta believes his story. And so Matthew's confidence grows. Matthew continues to build up his relationship with Nikki, spending much time with her and showering her with affection and love. That is, of course, until the couple bump in to Nikki's ex-boyfriend from high school, JP, while they are walking in Gateway Shopping Centre. Although she was kissing and walking hand in hand with Matthew after seeing JP she pulls away slightly and drops her hand and this is enough to set off what will be the first of many physical encounters. After a fiery argument and whilst driving him home Matthew begins to slap Nikki across the face. Shocked she immediately screams at him to get out of the car which he did and she drives away. And at this point, one would hope that she drove away and never looked back. Well, no, not exactly. She did drive a few kilometres, but then she became worried that something would happen to him if she just left him there on the side of the road. And so she turned around. She then drove back and she apologised, he swore to her, she begged for forgiveness, and then he called her a whore and told her that he did not need her. And then he promptly got back into the car so that he could get a lift home. He then stated quite nonchalantly to her something along the lines of, I wanted to leave you, but you're lucky. My angel said that you're important to God. Nikki feels a flood of relief, and just like that, Matthew has turned the table. And like any successful cult leader, he has created a dependency for affection and acceptance from Nikki. And this will be just the beginning of the toxic affair. So after that first lover's spat, Nikki and Matthew are back to their version of normality. Matthew, however, is hiding, amongst other things, A resentment for all that Nikki and her family has and all that he and his family does not. He would later state in a letter that he wrote to God, Do I have to take that cash from my mother? I can't stand her anymore, let alone take her money. And as for her brother and sisters, they are like s to me. The men in my family are lusting over my wife and just want to use her for sex. They just want to use my wife because she's white, and the women all hate me for no reason. And so Matthew devises a plan. He begins to complain in front of Nikki about how poor he is. Keep in mind that up until this point, All of the expenses, the food, the entertainment, etc. have all been on Nikki. Matthew has not contributed much, if anything at all, financially to the relationship. During this time, Nikki, who is now 25 years old, has started a band, Kula. And they are quite popular, booking paid gigs and playing shows all around KZN. She is also waitressing at a restaurant called Firkin's. She then decides that it'll be a great idea for Matthew, without any experience, to come and work as the band manager so that he can earn more money. To Matthew, the money part sounds great. The work part, not so much. However, on the 18th of May 2007, he agrees and he leaves his job as a packer. He then goes on to complain that the job is all good and dandy but he is going to have to ask her for money all the time. She then hands him all of her bank cards and she leaves him in control of all the finances. In her eyes and as far as she is aware in his eyes, they are basically married. And she knows that traditionally the men are in charge of finances and those kinds of affairs in the home. And so, in one foul swoop, Matthew now not only has control of Nikki, but also her finances. And this is yet another integral step in building loyalty within a cult following. It is all about gaining maximum control. Oh, and did I mention that during this time, Matthew is also living on and off in Nikki's bedroom unbeknownst to the lot of parents. And because of that locked door policy that I mentioned earlier, the two are able to pull it off, with Matthew only entering the house after the parents have gone to sleep. Hardez notices after a while, but he likes Matthew and he views him as a brother, so he decides to keep their secret. Within weeks of being together, The abuse escalates from Matthew slapping Nikki to unspeakable aggressive violations in the bedroom, which I will not get into. He also often punishes her for disobeying him by urinating on her and in her mouth. He was an absolute master at mind control, utilizing many common techniques, such as public humiliation, constantly reminding Nikki of her past indiscretions, especially in front of Hardis. The goal was to maintain emotional control over her. And in case he didn't seem like enough of a great guy as it was, he also hated animals. Nikki had a cat which she had had from a kitten named Rambo, whom she absolutely loved. And she had this cat prior to meeting Matthew. Shortly after he comes to stay, the cat is found dead in the next door neighbor's yard. When asked about it, he blames Methane, his dark side. The old family dog is also later targeted, but thankfully survives that physical encounter. Nikki is too preoccupied at this stage with Matthew's dark mood swings to even grieve the loss of her pet. Focusing on male happiness was unfortunately a learned behavior for Nikki, as she grew up in a household where the patriarchy was strong. So that, in combination with the grooming techniques that Matthew had been utilising, left her very much further under his control and influence. And the more control Matthew has, the more Nikki's life begins to suffer. She is working extremely long hours, only to come home so that she can pray over, or rather sexually please Matthew. She barely gets any sleep too, as he pretty much takes up the entire single bed, leaving her to sleep on the floor in her own room. He also then orders her to cut her hair, which she absolutely loves, and he tells her to throw out all of her whore clothing. He even dictates what music she can listen to, the rest must be disposed of. These actions further serve to destroy her personal identity for a more favoured group identity, whilst further isolating her from the things that she is familiar with. And Matthew's role as the manager of their band leads to further chaos. He ends up getting them kicked out or cancelled from multiple gigs, due to trying to hustle ridiculous price increases, or in another case, getting on stage to tell crude jokes in between their performances. He then convinces Nikki that he needs to be in her room 24-7 in order to protect her from the evil spirits and the tokoloshi. He also then goes on to tell her that he knows that the tokoloshi and the spirits who torment her at night have been sent by her father. And the reason he knows this? Well... It's because he is the son of God. He then solidifies this narrative by confirming that they are destined to have children together, three children in fact. One of them has the name Sasha, which she has always dreamed about, but never told anyone besides her journal that is. And Matthew just so happens to know it. Talk about divine perception, or rather a case of snooping fingers. I mean, and these are not even the most ridiculous things he says. He now knows that Nikki is firmly under his control, and so he sets his sights on Hardis. His ultimate plan requires both siblings. Hardis is quiet and reserved, but he connects with his sister's boyfriend, and he's eager to please, in this case, his sister. He's also part of the New South Africa, so he doesn't really get the race issue, that the of parents have with Matthew. Matthew then begins to exploit him and exert control over him using the same methods and formula that he used with Nikki. The initial story is that Matthew is recruiting God's warriors, the 12 Knights of God, and Hardis will be one of them. And with Hardis slowly slipping under his control, The cult is truly in action. Over the weeks to follow, he would constantly speak a narrative to the siblings until they became to believe his version of events as real life. Two of these stories were that their parents had raped them as children, but God had helped them to forget and block out the memory. And the other was that their parents were responsible for apartheid lasting so long. The brainwashing was working. On the 22nd of September 2007, Matthew turned 21. By this time, both of the Lotta siblings are well under his control, giving him whatever income they make or receive and obeying his will as he is the divine messenger of God, God's own son to be precise. Matthew's relationship with Nikki is as toxic as ever, and his controlling and jealous behavior ends up getting her fired from her waitressing gig at Furkins. With income drying up, Matthew begins brainstorming again. And that's when it comes to him. No, not the realization that he should get a job, but rather the of parents. <laughs> On the 16th of December, the lot's parents leave for a month to Khansbai, where they have a holiday home, which is also closer to where Christel lives in Stellenbosch. Although Hardis longs to join them, Matthew convinces him that God would prefer that he stayed at home. If God was Matthew, that is. With the house to themselves for a full month, Matthew works harder than he ever has before. He searches the house for all documents, papers and policies to understand exactly what assets the Lotta family have. He also uses this time to further convince the siblings of the evil of their parents. This serves to aid the paranoia that he instilled in both siblings. He convinced them that their parents were out to cause harm and that they should be on alert. He stated that their parents stood in the way of God's will. He further extends his control over Hardis by removing every single phone number in his phone. Isolation of members is key to success in cults. By the time the Lotter parents return, Matthew's work has been a success. However, he soon grows impatient, moody and angry, as he is once again relegated to Nicky's bedroom. He had grown quite used to ruling the roost, engaging in whichever pleasures he desired, in the of parents' double bed, and being the man of the house, so to speak. His anger displays itself in the microcosms of interactions with the siblings. He destroys any mementos he can find from Hardis' childhood and he continues to degrade and persecute Nikki, all under the guise of doing God's work. Nikki basically exists to serve his every desire, from financial to sexual. His systems of control are in place. Cutting ties with friends, family, money, and everything that makes a person an individual is characteristic of cult mentality. These control systems in place become the rules and regulations that all must abide by. During this time, Matthew also tells his own mother that he has left for London to work for Richard Branson. Yeah, London. Nikki has also been fired yet again from her new job, as an indirect result of Matthew. Either he is making her late by demanding that she prays over him before going to work, or he is giving her bruises and black eyes that she attempts to cover. Running out of money, Matthew gets the bright idea to steal from Mr. Lotta's credit card, which he knows he leaves in the house during the day. The trio then find the pin on some documentation, they take the card to the ATM and they withdraw 2000 Rand. They then replace the card exactly where they found it. Across town at work, Mr. Lotter gets an SMS notification that money has been withdrawn from his credit card. He rushes home only to find his card in the exact same place he had left it. Hardis, who is the only one home at the time, assures his father with his technological know-how that cards can be cloned and accounts can be hacked. So Mr. Lotter cancels his card, he orders a new one and yeah, you guessed it, they do it again. And again. What they don't realize is that after these multiple attempts, Johannes has contacted the Organized Crime Unit to investigate the case. Soon, the team there discovered that although the individual who withdrew the money wore a balaclava, he had dark skin and during one withdrawal, he wore a sweatshirt with 68 printed on it. To Johannes, that sweatshirt looks awfully familiar, but he just can't pinpoint where he's last seen it. The team also discover, in the background of one of the withdrawals, a green Uno with the exact same license plate number as Johannes' daughter. Nikki. Although there's no definitive evidence that it is indeed Matthew, Johannes orders a background check on him. He is then prompted to place charges, but he refuses doing so because he doesn't want his daughter to potentially get a criminal record. In the meantime, though, his darling beloved daughter Nikki. And her brother, Hardis, are scamming the of parents in whichever way they can to get money for Matthew. And so you may ask, well, what is he doing with this money, seeing as he's living in Nikki's bedroom, rent-free? Well, first and foremost, he's eating. His favorite restaurants are Ocean Basket and KFC. He also likes to go and play in the arcade almost daily as he doesn't have a job. Soon, the innocent petty theft becomes extortion, as both Nikki and Hardis, both on two separate occasions, fake kidnappings and attacks. And to sell the story a bit more, Matthew, using a random SIM card, begins to send threatening messages to the Lotter parents. The first message received on the 10th of June said, You Lotters make me sick. Your days are numbered. We will kill you one month from today. If I was you, I would start praying. Amen. This for all the people you wronged. Another SMS was then received the following day. I said, you people make me sick. You're going to pray for what you did to me. We mean business. Amen. And that's the exact wording of the messages received. Mr. Lotter on the 12th of June, 2008, approaches Inspector Duma, who he has been dealing with before at the Westville police station and he hands over all of the recently received SMS threats. The last SMS received by the family stated, Hello lotters, this is the last of the three SMSs I will be sending. I hope that dear Hardis is fine. He is such a little boy, but a son of yours would be a more." By the way, how is Christelle doing? She is the lucky one. Well, don't worry about Nicolette or others. They were just messages of warning. As God says, an eye for an eye. What Matthew did not realise though is that although he changed SIM cards, each phone has its own separate signature. And later forensic tracking would prove the exact origin of the SMSs received. And spoiler alert, The calls were coming from inside the house. Unfortunately though, that information would come just a little too late. But what information is received is that Matthew is a liar. The background check comes back and after yet more uncomfortable encounters, he is banned from the Lotta home. Mrs Lotta refers to Matthew as a dark horse, referencing the Trojan horse from the famous Battle of Troy. And little does she know how right she actually is. So after Matthew is banned from the house, or rather kicked out since he has been living there unbeknownst to the parents, Nikki leaves too, following her husband wherever the path may lead them. And that path leads them to the African Rainbow Lodge, a guest house in Glenwood. However, their income soon runs out. And so they're off to a rented room in Reservoir Hills, rented to them by Matthew's aunt, Vinola. Hardis is now their man on the inside, providing all information and details about what's happening in the home in their absence. Matthew is livid and he tells Nikki that they need to return, but because of all of this, racism and disgusting treatment, on top of the fact that her parents did both siblings as babies and were also responsible for apartheid lasting so long. Yeah, I don't even know where that came from. Now they must die. And there is no other option. But he assures the siblings that he will be the one to kill them. He just needs their assistance. The first plan is to give Mr. Lotta alcohol poisoning and hopefully kill him. He drinks quite heavily as it is, and so after Nikki moves back into the house and Matthew moves back into her room, unbeknownst to everyone, they start putting this plan into motion. On the 2nd of July, 2008, they poison Mr. Lotta's bottle by adding 95% alcohol that they get at the pharmacy. To ensure he drinks extra, they type out and send another threatening letter to the family. However, all that happens is that Mr. Lotta retires to bed earlier than expected. For the better part of a week, they continue doing this, but the desired effect is not achieved. They then move to plan B. This plan involves a poisonous plant's sap from the Durban Botanical Garden. So off in search of impala lilies and adenium they go. Later that day, Hardis puts the sap that they collected into his father's whiskey bottle, but again their plan is foiled. Mr. Lotta notices the white cuck at the bottom of the bottle and he throws the whole thing out. Building up to the final act, Matthew continues to terrorize the of parents. And so he has hardest type four letters, one to each of the family members. Johannes is exhausted and full of anger. He just keeps thinking about how no one is able to trace the senders of these letters and this nonsense is really getting out of hand. The letters and messages received have also been concocted by Matthew to aim to divide both Mr. and Mrs. Lotta, driving a wedge between the two. For the past year, Matthew has been earning at least 4,000 rand a month from Hardis and Nikki without lifting a finger. And if his calculations are correct, there's a lot more where that came from. If he can get rid of the Lotta parents. Plus, Nikki has already said that whatever is inherited Her share can go to him. A new plan is born. Matthew then decides that injecting air into the parents' veins will be the best option to end their lives. If done right, it can trigger a cerebral embolism and not raise any suspicion. In his mind, this was a foolproof plan where their fat father died of heart failure and their mother died of shock. He then returns home to Phoenix from London to give himself a good alibi for the days to come. Both Nikki and Matthew are prepping for the big day, but Hardis is just not so certain. And so Matthew resorts to threatening damnation from God himself. Cults rely on a belief system that requires transformation in order to get to a better place. If you don't follow the rules and the stipulations, you're excluded. And so for Hardis, the threat of exclusion is enough. Although not fully convinced, Hardis is eager to please, both the couple and of course, God. On the 18th of July, which happens to be a Friday, Matthew calls Hardis, demanding that he take his digital camera in to get some extra money. With that, they purchase the items that they need, needles, cable ties, and a super cheap taser. They then test the taser on Harders, who weighs around 70kgs at the time, as Matthew says they can't test it on him because he weighs more than the of parents at around 100kgs and Nikki only weighs 48kgs. The taser is pretty faint on the first and second try, but Matthew convinces the group that it probably just needs charging and so... Off they go, back home. The plan set in motion. Matthew has told them that this all must go down at 8 p.m. Matthew and Nikki purchase tickets to a movie in Pavilion Shopping Center, which will help to establish an alibi for the two of them. After walking around the mall for about an hour to be seen by as many surveillance cameras as possible, Nikki leaves Matthew in front of Sturk Kinnikor at 6pm and heads back home. Around 7pm, Hardis and Nikki sit down to a family meal full of nerves. The clock is ticking. Nikki has arranged the cable ties, tape and syringe on top of the fridge, within easy access but out of sight. Hardis has the taser in his back pocket underneath his baggy jersey. Just before 8pm, Nikki realises that both of her parents are still together in the lounge and that she needs to separate them. Her dad is passed out on the couch, a side effect from all the extra alcohol that they have been adding to his drinks. She then decides to call her mom into the kitchen under the pretense of having a cup of tea and a chat. Her mom, excited to reconnect with her daughter, happily obliges, taps her husband on the leg to wake him up, and as he stumbles off to the bedroom, she goes to the kitchen. As the minutes tick by and the conversation continues, Nikki looks behind her mother to Hardis, who has turned up the volume on the TV, but is nervously pacing back and forth down the corridor. In his mind, he is playing back his conversations with Matthew, whilst keeping his eye on the bedroom door to ensure that his father does not wake up. Nikki, however, mistakes this for hesitation. Just before 9pm, he walks up behind his mother and he jabs her in the neck with the taser. He expects it to fall, but this cheap little taser doesn't do much. He fumbles with the buttons and he tries again. Yet another fail. Ouch, his mother exclaims as she tries to turn around. Hardis acts fast and he places one of his arms around her neck in a sort of chokehold. At first, she thinks that this is just some sort of prank, like friendly wrestling, but then he pulls her and they both fall to the floor. As they fall, he tightens his grip on her neck, and what ensues next is pure chaos. Nikki tries to use the taser again, but it still isn't working. As Mrs. Lotta screams for help, Hardis attempts to shove a sock in her mouth but instead she bites down on his finger, which a few weeks later would still have a scar. Nikki then attempts to place a black bag over her mom's head, which is torn almost instantly, as her mother's arms and legs are still loose and thrashing around. The TV is loud, Mr. Lotta is passed out on the bed, and Mrs. Lotta is left to fight alone for her life from her own children. Nikki then attempts to cable tie her mom's arms and legs, starting at her ankles, but Matthew has bought cable ties that are way too short, and so after attaching several together and tightening them over her mother's ankles, they are broken in an instant. The next moments are a tussle with Nikki and Hardis punching their mother in the face to keep her quiet. Nikki resorts to some rather violent wrestling dead drops, and both siblings begin to freak out as nothing seems to be working. Nikki then reaches for the syringe and she begins to inject her wildly, whilst Hardis weighs her body down. Nothing is working. Nikki steps away and desperately calls Matthew to explain what has happened. Within 20 minutes, she has left and returned home from the Pavilion Shopping Center with an irate. Matthew. During this time, Mrs. Lotta has been pleading with her son to let her go, and he has been explaining how the son of God, Matthew, has told them that it is God's will that both her and Johannes die. Matthew, who has now arrived on the scene, keeps his distance and instructs Nikki on how the syringe should be inserted. He then retreats to her bedroom to lie on her bed and play on his phone, watching movies, completely unperturbed. Keep in mind, he said he would be the one doing the killing. Having failed multiple more times, Nikki returns in a panic to Matthew and this is when he hands her a set of knives that they had bought a few weeks prior. It is now time for plan B. Nikki isn't sure anymore. But her fear of Matthew trumps all other emotion. Taking a smaller steak knife, she returns and sits on her mother's body. Mrs. Lotta looks from Hardis to Nikki back to Hardis. But I love you, she utters. And with her dying words, Nikki stabs her multiple times. She then reports back to Matthew who tells her to go back and do it a few more times so that she can be sure. After her second round she then returns back to Matthew, however Hardis checks on his mother and he lets Nikki and Matthew know that she is still breathing even though she is unconscious. And so for the final round Nikki returns again. At the end of it all Mrs Lotter has been stabbed 11 times. Later forensic testimony by Dr Pele would detail that her death was long and painful but there is no time to waste at the lotter household, because Johannes, Mr lotter is next. Matthew is angry though, as things have not gone according to plan, and he blames Hardis for the taser not working, as though somehow it is his fault. He then instructs Hardis to stab his father, which Hardis objects to. It is finally decided that Hardis will strangle his father with a homemade killing device, as per Matthew's instructions, of course. It's also decided that he will take his own life afterwards as is God's will. But first, he must write a letter confessing to both murders. In Matthew's mind, a loner computer kid who plays too many video games snaps and kills his parents sounds like a good headline. Nikki, although extremely saddened by the turn of events, knows that they must obey and do God's will. Going against a leader and God's wishes is not advised and will only result in punishment. Whilst Hardis is prepping for the deed, Nikki and Matthew are on their way back to Pavilion Shopping Center. Nikki, whose clothes were covered in blood, has changed and all the items like the syringes, The tape and the cable ties has been placed into a black bin bag in the back of the car for Matthew to dispose of later. The two make sure to be seen by multiple cameras at the Pavilion Shopping Centre. They then go through and get coffee and hot chocolate at the Wild Bean Cafe just before midnight. Shortly after, Matthew is dropped by Kings Road with the bag of evidence. Back at the Lotta household, some electrical cord, Exercise handles and a broom make up the instrument that'll be used to end Johannes' life. Hades approaches his father in the bedroom and he switches on a nearby light. That light alerts Johannes. And when he realizes what is happening, he first tries to reason and make sense of what is going on. Very soon after, however, he realizes what is happening and the two are in a tussle. Johannes is naked as that's how he sleeps and so Hardis has trouble trying to get a good grip on him. As Hardis begins to shout about God's will, Johannes immediately grows concerned for his wife. He begins to call out her name. He then makes it to the lounge where the TV is blaring and he shouts for help. Unfortunately, there is no one to hear his calls. Hardis is in full attack, roundhouse kicking and chokeholding his father, who is putting up a pretty big fight. He manages to finally kick him down in the passageway and he jumps on his back, harnessing the homemade weapon. After a final struggle, Johannes is gone. His final words to his son... We can work this out. Hardis remains on the body for over 20 minutes. Forensic reports would later show that there was severe hemorrhaging, but that the cause of death was strangulation. Minutes later, Hardis has phoned Nikki, who phones Matthew, and within a short while, all three individuals are back at the home. Although Nikki is happy to see her brother, Matthew is not impressed that Hardis is alive. And so plan C is put into place. Over the next few minutes, the official story that will be told is given to the siblings by Matthew. Matthew and Nikki went out to the movies after Nikki had a fight with Mrs. Lotta. Harder's was home with his parents and he saw a car which he thought was Nikki's pull up. He had then opened the door. But it was actually the people who had been trying to harm them, the same people that had sent them those threatening messages. They came into the house House and locked Hardis in his room before killing both Lotta parents. Nikki had dropped Matthew off after the movie to catch a lift home And when she returned home, she had found Hardis and the scene of the crime. For added effect, they had previously typed out a letter, which would be left somewhere by the entrance for Nikki to find on her way in. Matthew also took some money out of Mrs. Lotta's bag. And so the sordid tale played out. Nikki doesn't call the police herself. But Matthew instead stumbles into the police station just after 2am in a panic, telling them all about what has happened with his girlfriend as she has called him, but he doesn't actually know because he hasn't been in the house yet. Within minutes, he is in the car with the police officers on the way to the Lotto home. Hardest at this point is beyond shocked as the weight of what has been done is really impacting him. Nikki was a lot more calm given the current situation, and she even attempted to make herself cry by rubbing onions under her eyes. When it didn't work, she just chucked them away and she had to resort to her acting skills. As the police arrive on the scene, she plays the part of the distraught daughter. Things don't really pan out as Matthew expects though, as a murder, especially two murders after multiple threats have been received, gets sent immediately to the Organized Crimes Unit. Detective Duma arrives on the scene and unfortunately realises that the threats that the Lotta family had been complaining about so many times were indeed not unfounded or just a teenage prank. After the horror of the crime scene, a letter is found which basically points towards Matthew, Nikki and Hardis as the potential perpetrators. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure but Matthew must have thought that pointing all leads towards them would somehow prove their innocence. Soon all three of them are taken to the police station to be examined as well as to wait in the conference room whilst forensic testing is being completed at the house. Before they leave the house though, Matthew managed to sneak his way back inside under the pretense of grabbing a jacket. He made his way to Nicky's room, grabbed the jacket but then he also grabbed his journal which he had been writing in daily for the past year. As they walk out the door, the Lotta siblings do not realise that they will never be stepping into this home again. Things, however, are not adding up on the scene of the crime though, as valuables have not been taken and Nikki never even once tried to call the police. The forensic pathologist on scene immediately realises that rigor mortis has begun to set in for Mrs Lotta, but not yet Mr Lotta, which signals two different times of death. And this doesn't line up to the story that has been told. The trio at the police station start to be questioned as suspects. After various attempts and interrogation techniques, the truth of Matthew, the son of God, comes out and the arrests are made. Hardis is the first to crack, as he is made to realise that everything that Matthew has said has been a lie. Many cult members don't realise that they are in cults until far later when the wool is pulled from their eyes. Hardis writes a 12-page confession and he points detectives in the direction of Matthew's journal, which he has hidden in the conference room where they were being held. The realisation of what he has done shatters him. Nikki, however, is still in denial. Her love for Matthew is stronger than her sense of reason. The control he has over her is still very much in action. Matthew initially confesses to the murder of Mrs. Lotta and he does this for one of two possible reasons. The first is a potential legal move for later and the second was that he might need to protect Nikki as she was his only link to the inheritance. He also brings detectives to the location where he has dumped at the black bag of evidence, which, coincidentally, only contains the fingerprints of the Lotta's siblings. Throughout all of this, he has always been one step ahead. After requesting on multiple occasions to speak to Matthew as he must tell her what to do, she eventually sees the light. She finally has the chance to see Matthew and confront him, under surveillance of course, and so she asks him, Are you the son of God? He laughs and he looks around at the surrounding officers as though she is crazy. There is no God he replies, and then proceeds to blow kisses at her. In the days that follow, the media get hold of the case and the headlines go crazy, as you can imagine. During those days, all three perpetrators are visited by priests, and during one session, Nikki is taught about cults, which prompts her to, against the wishes of her lawyer, write an additional confession. She has already written 12 pages by hand. But this one is entitled, Why My Brother and I Were in a Cult But Did Not Know It. The latter siblings are then left completely alone and broken, facing the realization that everything from the past few months was a lie. Nikki, shortly after being arrested, had phoned various family members to let them know that her parents had been murdered, one of which was her father's mother her grandmother. She later found out that shortly after she had phoned her grandmother, the woman had passed away from a heart attack. The parents of both Johannes and Maria suffered a great deal after the death of their children. In addition, the family of Nikki and Hardis Lotta would have nothing to do with them, both emotionally and financially. Well, at least in the beginning. Later, after the verdict was handed down though, Reverend Willem Lotte, Johannes' brother, said that although the family still battled to show forgiveness, they were trying. The Lotte siblings had then attempted to petition for their dead parents' estate in order to pay some of their legal fees. However, this attempt was thwarted by Christel and some other family members. In court papers, Christelle had said that it is unacceptable that her siblings attempt to claim from their parents' estate. A share and benefit made directly possible by the heinous murder of my parents who otherwise would have been expected still to have been there for me and those others who loved them for years to come. And she went on to state that her siblings were driven by money, sex and anger and planned carefully to get away with murder. Therefore, bail for either of the siblings whilst awaiting court proceedings was not even an option. Matthew, on the other hand, received 20,000 Rand bail. This was a little while after a fake petition started by his mother entitled A Popular Petition for the Release of Popular Matthew was created. Yeah, sounds super legit. The petition had nothing to do with his successful bail application, though, as the judge later ruled that it was not even worth the paper it was written on. The reason being was that many of the names and numbers were invalid or fake, and most of them pointed back directly to the Naidu family. Matthew broke into a smile when bail was granted and threw his arms in the air. During the trial, he would show up smiling and waving. He also went on to claim that he was extremely close to the Lata parents, and lie. He would then go on to say the family were in conflict but my arrival into the picture helped some peace to be restored. I told the lotters that I wanted to marry Nicolette, They gave me their blessing but said that I would have to stay with them until we are financially stable and able to move out. To prove that he was close to Mrs. Lotter, he also went on to state that he gave her a shoulder to lean on after she was extremely emotional and told him that her other daughter, Christelle, had pushed her to the floor during an argument. He twisted the entire narrative typical of a narcissistic, pathological liar, turning Nicolette into the dominant one, who did not like how close he and Mrs. Lotta were. You are my boyfriend, not hers she had said, when Mrs. Lotta had confessed and confided in Matthew. He also stated that he was most definitely not the son of God. And he would later go on to say, I would like to plead guilty to the heinous crime. I just want this trial to be over and I want to bring peace to the Lotta and Naidu families. But a little while later, he said, I want to plead guilty to the murders, but I did not kill them. After that confession, his bail was revoked, despite his desperate pleas to the judge. The judge said that Matthew had accepted that he was an accessory to the murders, and he was now deemed a flight risk. Documents in court shown in Matthew's handwriting had said, Her father will die very soon. His life will be taken because of what he has done to people, so people will do it to him. My father, thank you for making me a better person, for showing me how to handle the darkness in me. Although seemingly unperturbed, confident and articulate throughout the majority of the trial, when post-mortem pictures of the latter parents were shown, he became queasy and put on quite the show. During her trial and during her testimony, Nicolette expressed how Matthew had ended her life at such a low point. She had said, I felt indebted to him. Because he'd helped me sort out my life. When asked how she could believe that Naidu was the son of God, when he was physically abusive, used bad language and was dyslexic, she had said, I saw myself deserving of punishment because I didn't listen to him when he gave me instructions. I couldn't believe my mom because Naidu showed me revelations that she was evil. She was opposed to him doing God's work. He said our parents did not love us. They looked at us as failures. They didn't want us to be happy and successful. Hardis maintained throughout the trial that he believed the motive for killing his parents was purely financial. He was scared to oppose Matthew. He confessed to feeling absolutely terrible about killing his parents and he went on to state, I am not a jealous person. I am reasonable and I am not stupid. Can't you see? I was under his black magic, his evilness. If I could turn back time, I would. He took advantage, knowing that I believed in God 100%. He said he had the power of God, and in my state, I believed every word. Both Hardis and Nikki were found guilty by Judge Cheyenne Gyanda. He admitted that the siblings had been influenced by Matthew, however, they still had the ability to differentiate right from wrong. Nicolette Lotter was sentenced to 12 years in jail, and Hardis Lotter was sentenced to 10 years in jail. After the conviction, Hardis had said, "'I know there are many people who hate me, and I have come to terms with that. I also know that there are many people who support me. My heart is right with Jesus Christ, and I hope he will be merciful to me. In his judgment, Giander compared their case to the brainwashing of followers in the 1978 Jonestown cult massacre, in which Californian preacher Jim Jones murdered 276 children and 638 adults with cyanide-laced fruit punch. Matthew was found guilty on two counts of murder. The court found no substantial and compelling evidence that he was repentant or that he could be rehabilitated since he still maintained no wrongdoing. He was then given two life sentences. After the verdict was handed down, he had said, I just got found guilty today for murder. I have been found guilty. I accepted that, but I have not committed this crime. He really assumed that just because he didn't have a physical part to play in the murders, that somehow he would just get off scot-free. He went on to state, At the end of the day, I don't understand why this crime was committed. I do feel for my ex-girlfriend and I do feel for my former friend, Hardis. So, where is everyone now? So, a quick 2022 update. Both Lotta siblings have now been released from jail. Hardis was released in 2018 to serve the remainder of his sentence on house arrest. Hardiz, who was 29 years old at the time, was released into the care of Durban pastor Danny Israel, after serving his sentence in Sevontaine Prison. He then began to follow a very strict and disciplined life, in private. During his house arrest, he had certain hours where he was allowed out, as well as a strict rehabilitation program. His sentence was completed in 2020. During this time, he also opened up his own computer repair business. The community, however, remain divided on his release. In the last interview he gave before his release, he said, If I could turn back the clock, I'd go back to where it all started. To the day I met Matthew, I'd have never befriended him. I'd have made sure my sister stopped seeing him. Nicolette was released in 2020 after serving her sentence in Westville Prison, where she studied theology through Unisa. In 2018, she married Rian Nordke after a brief telephonic relationship. After an episode of The Lotta Family Murders was aired on a local television show, Rian had seen her and he had begun to write her in prison. And the rest? was history. They were married in prison with a maximum of eight guests and the wedding was published in the U and Heisgnut, local magazines in South Africa. Hardes Nor Kristal attended the wedding. However, Hardes did send his well wishes and said that he hopes that his sister has picked the right person to marry. I mean, you can see why he says that. In an interview prior to her release, Nicolette had said, I would love to have my own family one day. I also want to do good in my life, make a positive contribution to society before I die. I miss having a family and belonging to a family. I miss my parents and our pets. I miss going fishing with my dad. And I miss my mom's baking and cooking. I used to visit my brother when he was still at Westville's men's prison. Since he has been drafted to see Montaigne, I write to him. But it's not the same. I miss my friends and family who used to be in my life before what happened. The hardest part, Nicolette says, is that she cannot go back in time and undo what has been done. Matthew is, thankfully, still behind bars in Westville Prison. Upon being sentenced, Matthew had written a letter to his mom stating the following. Please forgive me, Ma. The Lord has made me strong to face this. Please forgive Nikki and Hardis. I've come to understand there is a real devil in this world, and I know now he is at work here. But relax, Ma, there will be heaven for us all. Matthew maintained that he was unfairly treated during the trial as he was given two life sentences, despite not physically being on the crime scene. Yet those who had killed their parents were serving much less sentences. His mother, who only earns around 600 rand a week, spends about 400 rand a week buying food for Matthew, which includes 40 slices of cheese and poloni, 8 chicken pieces, a loaf of bread, fruit, and 2 litre Cokes amongst other things for apparently a group of hardened prisoners and she does all of this to protect her son. She also said her son's fellow inmates demanded four specific types of fruit saying it must be four not three not five and she deeply fears deviating from the list. She had said through all of this I still love my son I will continue to visit him and I will still support him because he is my only child. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a good chance that Matthew is just up to his manipulative ways again and it might have nothing to do with protection in prison. The relationship between Nicolette and Matthew was highly pathological. The control that Matthew exerted over her and the resulting effects can be understood not only through the paradigm of a cult, but also in terms of battered woman syndrome. Regardless of what you personally may believe, caused the two lotter siblings to traverse such a dark and twisted path. The consequences of their actions continue to haunt and impact their daily lives. Not only do they live with the guilt and the regret of what they have done, but they've lost their family. The very public portrayal of the murders and the subsequent trial thrust their journey into the spotlight and opened up many conversations about the prevalence and dangers of cults like these existing right in the heart of suburbia. You know though, like I mentioned before, many cult members such as Nikki and Hardis for example, have absolutely no clue that they're in a cult whilst they're in the cult. Cults are not only crazy groups of people led to killing, but they can be crazy fanatical fitness groups or even MLM marketing groups. You know which one. The truth is, even the most unassuming person, under the right circumstances, with the right factors and the right motivation, may be capable of committing the most heinous and atrocious actions. Thank you so much for joining me on this extremely intense episode. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every one of you are. Also don't talk to strangers, and beware of cults. Okay, thanks, bye.